You are listening to The Bell Post. Welcome to the next episode of our podcast. Today we have a a guest that I've never met before. His name is Bill Armstrong, and he's a bondsman uh, with a very unique story from California. Mr. Armstrong, welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. You know, you're unique because you're like a third-generation bondsman. Tell us about your family's history in writing bail. We started writing bail in 1926, and uh, actually with no licensing, because back then there was no licensing agency. So our our first few years of writing bonds was without licenses. But uh, once the state became, you know, started licensing bondsmen, we've we've been uh, licensed ever since. If I knew you better, I'd be asking whether you bonded out Cain or Abel, just because I'd be picking <laughs> on you. <laughs> You're saying y'all been in y'all been riding bail since what for ninety something years? Ninety six years, continuously wow. every day. Well, I mean that's a nice tribute to you, your father, and your grandfather. That's I mean right. that's that's incredible story. I I have I have known second generation bondsmen. And I'm starting to meet third generation bondsmen, but they're not licensed yet. They're working in the office. You're a well entrenched third generation bondsman. Congratulations. Yeah, I've ridden bonds for 40 years. So, well, you know, I used to tell people, you know, back before Bell was a business, when the bondsman died, the business died because, you know, this incredible responsibility for running off the open liability, nobody knew how to do it. Not only have y'all, figured out how to do that y'all done it in a successive generation so i mean such a tribute to your grandfather on uh teaching you and your dad how to run a successful business but y'all really must be doing a very good job i appreciate that <laughs> yeah i'm the well, president what do you, what of, do you the, think the, of the california bail agents association this year well, you know, so, writing bail in California seems like it's going through some uh, a little uh, ups and downs in the last couple of years. Uh, and y'all are, where are y'all located? Like in L.A.? Yeah, my office is in Glendale, which is part of uh, Los Angeles. We're in the you gotta Los feel Angeles like y'all been, uh, County. You got to feel like y'all are being shot at daily in the in the bail bond business by uh, some politician. Um. We never let our guard down. That's what I'm telling my uh, <laughs> my board of directors. It's uh, as soon as we we get done with one and take a breath, it's there's something else on the horizon. It's uh, it's been pretty consistent for the last ten years at at least. What you just mentioned was your board of directors. That's a reference to the California Bell uh, Agents Association, right? R- right, exactly. Okay, tell me. I mean. You know, in Texas, that's where we're located or I'm located. We have, you know, PBT, that's the statewide association, which right. is, we ca- I think we call it the voice of the bail industry. I mean, wh- how many associations are there in California that represent bondsmen? Just the California Bail Agents? Or- wow. Cal- we're, we're the biggest in the nation. And sure. uh, there is another group, uh, Golden State Bail uh Golden State Association, Bail Association, or something like that. That's really just a few larger bondsmen that got together. Um, 
But uh, to be honest with you, they're all guys I know and, you know, I've known for many, many years and, and they participate. They're, they're, they're always a help to me. Uh, Topo Padilla was, is, you know, was a president. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the president today. Well, and he's the current president of PBUS and we've had him. He's, he's a current the, president the of PBUS. I've known Topo for 40 years and I've, uh, I'm on the president's council for PBUS, um, which, you know, actually I, it's first year I've been on that president's council, but I, I, I enjoy it. It's, it's, it's good to see the perspective of what bail is in other states. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, the uh, council of presidents, which is a part of the professional bondsman of the United States association group, which, which they kind of uh, uh, facilitate. And I think that's a great group. And I think it's a, a great idea for the bail industry disseminating information across the United States. And I don't really think it's used to its full potential in that regard. And so I think we can do a better job as an industry in getting our message out through the council of presidents. And so hopefully, uh, and I know, you know, Mike Bird, the president of PBT is involved with the council of presidents. And so we've had some discussions about how we can help get our message out. Cause you know, anytime you are doing something, we, Good. We want to share it. And so, and I think the opposite is true too. Well, the, the, the concept of bail is, is pretty universal, but uh, how it's actually done, uh, especially the dynamics between Texas and California, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of differences. And I, and I don't prefer, <laughs> prefer to know how, how they write bonds in Texas, but I, I, I've heard that the fees are, um, can be adjusted to the liability and so on where our fees are, are very heavily fixed at, at least at a, at a high end, we work between 10 to 7% depending on qualifications and, and some things like that. And, uh, you know, the individual companies have filings here in California, but I've never, there is nothing that exceeds 10% as far as I know. In preparation for our talk today, you know, I saw something that said that, you know, there's 2,700 licensed bondsmen in the state of California. And between them and their employees, that represents about 8,000 people who that well, make up the bail industry in California. Is that correct? Well, you know, um, there's actually, a, that has dropped significantly during the COVID. You know, we got highly restricted on our bail writing capabilities during, during the COVID. Uh, they went to a zero bail policy and we survived on, on a few cases with the, the violent crimes, uh, spousal abuse, um, you know, assault with a deadly weapon, et cetera. But everything else was being released zero bail. So now today there's approximately 1500 licensed bondsmen in California. That's wow. how hard, that's how hard it hit our industry. So, um, and then, you know, the calculation everybody has, you know, some, some offices have one person, you know, operating it and there's others sure. with a whole, you know, an army of people. But I, you know, there could easily be 10,000 people supporting, you know, involved in the bond sure. business overall. I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, what the secret sauce is that you know, about the bail industry, you know, why we have such a better appearance rate than any other release mechanism. 
And, you know, so, you know, if you don't mind, you know, tell us about what it is that you do that, that makes defendants appear versus any other release mechanism like zero bail. Well, I mean, zero bail was a huge failure in my, in my, uh, opinion. Um, there was one County came out recently that said that 70% of the, of the releases on the zero bail policies failed to appear. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're nowhere near that. <laughs> we're not, we're in the first 1% and that, and for it to actually go to where we pay a bond off is, is even lower than that because we make people accountable. You know, they're, they, they, they have an investment in it and, and they have family that are co-signers that are investing in the, in the defendant that doesn't exist in a zero bail. I mean, let's face it, the defendants are already in, pro already in trouble with the court uh, or they wouldn't be in that situation. They've already have a problem with the court. Why do they think they're gonna have a lot of respect for the court? When, when, a, when we bail someone, we always try to get a, a third party, a co-signer, at least somebody involved so that the defendant is responsible to the co-signer and not to the, the court, which, you know, they've already screwed up with. So uh, I think that's the real key. There's a couple of things that I like to highlight to people when, you know, I talk to them and they really don't know anything about bail. And the first thing that I kind of highlight is, you know, each release mechanism has a failure to appear rate. And, you know, a failure to appear rate affects the court's ability to resolve its case because, you know, criminal law is different than anything else. That means if someone fails to appear, like you just mentioned, a 70% failure to appear rate, anytime they miss court, their case is put on hold because we can't do anything to them except in very rare situations until they come back. And so we're, whether we're waiting hours, days, weeks, months, years or never, we have to wait for them to come back before we can do anything on their criminal case. So the higher the failure to appear rate, that means the court's going to have a higher and higher backlog. And you know, it could get to the point where the, the court, the criminal justice system is, is going to collapse from the weight of the, uh, of its backlog. And just the type of release has a huge impact on that. You know, if you're like the industry average, less than 10% on your failure to appear rate versus 70%. I mean, we don't have to have double the courts to resolve the same number of cases if they used us versus just uh, a zero bail. But you got to have pretty close to that to be able to resolve the same number of cases, just switching release mechanisms. And I don't think that many people realize that. Well, just take a look. If, if, if one county has a 70% failure to appear rate, they got to run the defendant through the system uh, again. I mean, you know, it, it just the cost of that has it, sure. got to be, I mean, it makes it would make sense that it's, 70% higher. I mean, if a court here in California, gosh, or in uh, Los Angeles, which is the probably the largest market in the probably in the world, I, I, I don't know the figure, but it's way into the millions of dollars in expense and to deal with defendants in from the court's point of view. Well, you know, I think the other point that I would make is, you know, when we're involved, we usually have family members involved as well. And, you know, one of the reasons why we have such a high success rate is we have family involvement and we've got people who are 
you know, on the cusp of being real troublemakers. And a lot of times the family involvement gets them to wake up and become productive citizens. Or at least it gets the pressure on them to come to court because, okay, they're a screw up, but they don't want their screw up to hurt the family. And I think that we don't realize, I don't think our criminal justice system realizes when you're limiting the, the surety's ability to post bonds for uh, individuals, you're actually giving up on defendants where family involvement could have turned those people around. And I don't think people realize that. Well, I think that's a good point. And, and you know, so much of today in the, in over the last 10 years with all this bail reform stuff going down, everything's been from the point of view of the defendant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're seeing a trend of, of that reversing. What about the what about the taxpayer that pays for all this stuff? You know, I mean, all these these early release and zero bail policies. The burden of the expense of that is on the taxpayer and the people of the state. You know, it's always the people of the state of California. <clears throat> Why do they have to be the ones that bear the cost of this? Uh, it, it it really. You know, it's the defendant created the problem. Then let the defendant carry the carry the weight of, of of solving it. But I mean, there's there's a lot of other things about bail that that are super important. Uh, and I want to just kind of stop here for a moment, and I really want to just underscore the point that you just made because I mean, when you say there's a seventy percent failure to appear rate on using zero bonds, and that's a an official report from a county. I mean, we just we got two years worth of data from a Harris County uh, district clerk's website and we posted on a website and the numbers that we're finding for misdemeanor bail reform are, are consistent or even worse. We've got an 80% failure to appear rate. And so I'm, and then you've got on top of that, that 72% of the cases uh, are being dismissed on misdemeanor bail reform. And you can't, you know, it doesn't take rocket science to say, you know, it looks like to me that bail reform is really code for decriminalization because oh, yeah. that's what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, I my board uh, corrected me saying, you know, yo, you can't say zero bail. Listen, <laughs> I said, look, zero bail is like saying, you know, give me a Kleenex instead of a tissue. It means bail reform. It means, you know, not with not letting defendants be accountable for themselves it means the defendant is going to be the the county or the state becomes uh accountable for the defendant it just doesn't work and um i mean the the numbers have proved it doesn't work well isn't it interesting that bell reform started out with you know people are really good people and they will come to court without a bondsman they want to resolve their case and they want to go on with their lives so people will appear without a bond and now we know the answer to that is clearly no they won't come to court without a bondsman the numbers all show that and so then i think we're really uncovering today that the real agenda is decriminalizing crime and you know they start with misdemeanors and you can see that especially in california where they they take some felonies, change them to misdemeanors, and then suddenly the DAs in certain counties are no longer going to prosecute those as, as crimes. And you can see how 
organized crime gang members and, you know, career criminals just step in and they just go hog crazy because they see, hey, we can make money here. And that's what we're seeing across the country. Bail reform doesn't mean bail reform. That bail reform means we're giving up on crime. That's what it's looking like more and more across the country. And I think the public is starting to see that. I, I tell you, I, I've seen a trend where people come to California, come to California to take advantage of those uh, very liberal policies. And uh, they always tell me, well, I'm, I'm here on vacation. Well, yeah, hey, who comes to Glendale for vacation? Nobody. Yeah, it's, it's a, this is a working town. It's not a vacation. It's not like going to Florida or Hawaii, you know. And, and I always wonder, they're, they're coming here to, to rip this place off. During the COVID policies with the zero bail, people can come here and, and be arrested, released on a zero bail, go out and do it again, be released. In Glendale, there was a case where there was a guy was arrested four times in five, in about five days. I don't even know how you do that, to be honest, but it, mm -hmm. it, it happened literally right down below my office. The last time he got out, he walks about 10 feet out of the jail. They were, they were filming across the street and a guy had left his truck, one of the film crew trucks. The guy jumps in the truck and takes off. I mean, literally walked. 10 feet out of the door of the jail and steals a truck. Well, they tracked him down. By the time they caught him, uh, he was about an hour down the road and uh, he'd already scored a crack pipe and gotten crack. And the, the, the truck had a GPS. So I, I don't know what the guy was thinking. So they, they, they arrest him another, uh, another city. I think it was the city of Laverne. It's also part of Los Angeles County. And they released him <laughs> again. That was just unbelievable. I have a situation where there were four girls, all four down here came from the state of Washington, came down here, got a room, started ripping off the, uh, the, the local, local malls and stuff. Probably got caught once or twice, got released. Finally got picked up by Glendale PD. Three of them were released on a zero bail policy. The fourth one, the only one that needed bail, a $50,000 bail, because she lied to the police about her name. That's the one I wrote. And I was actually wrote the bond because I was, <laughs> I felt bad because she had a little nine-month-old baby down here. And, and all four of them failed to appear. Well, there's only one of them that's going to end up coming back down here to sure. appear. And that's the one that I'm going to go get. I already know where she's at. And um, I've got to get past some technical things because the state issued warrants. They're not even, they're, they're statewide warrants. They don't go to, to out of the state. And so I'm having a problem where I can't get her out of one state back to here, even though I know where she's at. So, you know, that's where bail comes in. The rest are gone. As long as they don't come back to the state of California, there's no warrant out for them. So. You know, I talk to judges sometimes, and I've been saying for a long time, you know, if, if you don't care whether a defendant comes to court, then you don't need us. I mean, the bail industry does one thing, and it does it very well, and it does it at the, at the highest appearance rate of any rec release mechanism, and that is we get people to court. And but if you're going <laughs> to, 
Uh, you know what? And at the lowest cost, no cost to the taxpayer. Well, to be honest with you, we're positive cash flow to the to the True. court system. Every bond we write is taxed. Whether, you know, bondsmen don't see that, but it's taxed at the surety level. Every bond we write True. is taxed. And, and think about every bond that we pay off. Now, whether or sure. not we collect uh, the things, you know, in the last 10 years, I bet you I've handed them $400,000 and mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in payoffs on bonds. That goes to the general fund. So bail is a positive cash flow to the state of California. So, uh, it, 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 so you, you can say it's zero cost, but it's better than zero cost. It, we actually make them money. Uh, well, you know, whenever I talk to people from other states, I always like to know how bail works in their state because, you know, uh, and so I always start with, you know, the Constitution and y'all's Constitution is very similar to Texas Constitution because it says every person, unless the Constitution of California authorizes specific types of crimes to be held, everyone else has a right to bail with sufficient surety and you know, we've had a lot of litigation during COVID. And so like in Texas at the Fifth Circuit, you know, the federal Fifth Circuit, that phrase has been has been litigated. And that form of release is us. We're the only form of release that is protected by the California Constitution and the Texas Constitution. That means any other form of release can be given by the legislature. It can be taken away. But you as a public, you are guaranteed a right unless the Constitution takes it because of the crime that you're accused of, they have to offer you a release on sufficient surety unless they amend the Constitution. That means the voters have to approve it. And I think, you know, we get demonized so much, the public doesn't realize what a great asset and, and protector of their rights that we, we are, and we don't get credit for that. Well, I agree 100%. It's the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution that talks about bail. But, you know, the, the California state constitution also talks about the sure. right to bail, as, as does Texas, like you said. I'm sure a lot of other states. And, uh, you know, it's been a principle from, from, from 200 years before we were a country. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, when sure. bail has been in existence for like 500 years. It started in England. The concept of bail and and so on, it's it's not it's not a new concept. I mean, there was bail being written in the United States before it was the United States. You know, when it was a well, and I like I like to tell people the history of bail dates back all the way to if you bonded somebody out of the jail and they didn't show up for court, you took their place. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that'd be a little rough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know well, if I'd be um, in favor of that one. <laughs> so in Texas, we have surety bonds. That's us. We have right. cash bonds, which is you post the full amount of the bond in cash. And we have what we call personal bonds. What, what's the equivalent in California? Well, we have the, we have a surety bonds like, you know, like you guys. Uh, we also have, you know, you can put cash up for the full amount. Sure. Uh, they have, I, I don't know. I, if you call the personal bond uh, a personally secured bond, it's really not a secured bond. That's a release on their own recognizance. 
Yeah. Y'all would call that a release on their own recognizance. We call it a personal bond, which is a bond without surety. Yeah, okay. And but there's no money involved. Well, we put a dollar amount because that's what the court does. The job of the court is to place a set amount of bail that will ensure their appearance. Even if it's a personal bond, it has to have a dollar amount. Does the defendant have to put any money up? No, no. So yeah, if it's a five thousand okay. dollar personal bond, they're still just given a pinky promise that they'll yeah. show up. And they're not paying for it usually. So it's, it's just a dollar amount that they promise to pay, which, you know, they can't if, if they don't show up for court. And, yeah, we, and they don't. We, they don't we, we had that for a little while. It sunset it out about 40 years ago where they called it a 10 percent uh, bail. So in other words, sure. and, and this this was the, the typical logic that never made sense to me is that you would put up a 10 percent of the bail. And if you screwed up. Then you would owe the rest of it, <laughs> you know. Oh wow! It's like uh, you know, really. So if my qualification for success is that I don't succeed, then I would have to. And you know, in the in the years that that ran, and it finally sunsetted out, they received absolutely zero any of that money. It never got a dime of the money that was owed for the people that forfeited those ten percent bonds. They called them. We have had periodically in Texas bills filed to allow a 10% bail in Texas. And, you know, it's never really gone anywhere. And I like to refer to that as the worst of both worlds all in one bill because you, you know, the courts think, oh, we're going to make money because, and it's based upon this concept, oh, well, that people will just show up. We really don't need a bondsman and we can pay for part of our courts with the money that the bondsman would have taken. And they don't realize all the stuff that we do, all the things that we have to spend money on and get people to court and then go get after. And none of that's part of the bill. And so they end up with a, a much higher failure to appear rate. And they really don't get any benefit from it because it ends up costing a lot more money with more courts. And, and so it really is the worst of all the worlds all in one exactly. little package. And they don't realize it. We, we do have another system that called a property bond where... And it's pretty rare, to be honest. You know, one thing about surety bail is it's extremely fast and it's extremely efficient. Uh, where property bond, you got to go, you got to pledge the property, they've got to appraise it. It happens when bails are in the millions and people have, you know, great value in property and they can, you know, get twice. Sure. I don't know what the requirements are, double the property, whatever. But then a court can issue you know, bail based on a property bond, very rare. You just don't see it because it's so hard to do and, and requires so much time, you know. Uh, you well, know, talk to me a minute about this zero bail. What, where does it fall in there? Is it just personal recognizance bond well, or is it just you're released on a zero bond? Just a zero bond. And that was, that was COVID. When COVID hit, they, they grabbed what they call executive power, you know. When they go into that emergency mode, the governors, and they can do anything they want. So to me, the anti-bail people just went like, oh, my God, this is like a blessing from heaven. All we got to do now, uh, I saw the Supreme Court, you know, went in and said, that's it. We're, we're just going to go zero bail. We've got to get everybody out of the jails. They're all going to die from COVID. We got to dump everybody out of our jails. And they did. I mean, a lot of people went out. The problem was... 
but the ones that are there for a while, they're pretty bad people. They've already called out all the low-hanging fruit, you know. The people that are that are doing in that county jail that are there for for any length of time are very high grade felonies. They're not just little misdemeanor things and this and that. Most of them are released. Almost all misdemeanors are released automatically. You know, you mentioned several times zero bail, COVID, but it seems like to me that COVID gave us a really good look at what bail reform looks like oh, yeah. with, on, on steroids. And it gave us a real clear view that it does not work. And it does, and it's a stunning failure. And it really was during COVID. I mean, it, all over the place in California, I mean, we kept seeing story after story where somebody was arrested and then they'd be arrested a second time. I mean, we started keeping track of what's the new record for some one person getting arrested within a 48, 72 hour period. And it was, it, you know, you'd, you'd laugh, but it, it was sad also, you know, it's like you put the rights of the of the defendant above the rights of the victims in these crimes. It's, it's, well, I, it's I had one guy for four arrests in, in five days. And, you know, by the, when you figure the arrest, the amount of time it takes to arrest, to get them processed through, get them fingerprinted and fingerprints back and all that baloney, it almost seems impossible, the, the time, you know, and then, mm -hmm. but then they'd cite them out. And they were actually not even bringing people in. Uh, yeah. I had uh, a case with a guy. <laughs> Here I go again, my big heart, writing a bond for a, a veteran. And when that guy walked away from my car after I'd written that bond, I thought, damn it, that guy, I'm not going to see him again. And sure enough, he, uh, the only reason I wrote the bail was because he was a vet. And I never would have wrote the bond other than, that, other than that, but I always tried to help out. And he jumped bail. You've mentioned that California uses bail schedules, and those come up periodically in Texas. So yeah. would you explain, I mean, I don't really understand. So you could tell, could you tell me how bail schedules work in California? Are they statewide? Does the state set them? Does no, the court set them? Do no. they set by county? Explain they're, what that process is. They are set by the individual counties. And that's actually one of the things, and we've, we opposed it as, as there's been some things that never really got any legs, but they, they, they wanted to go to a statewide bail schedule. Now we don't like that because it eliminates competition between the counties. Then we only have to get one liberal judge that goes and says, you know, hey, whoa, you know, I'm going to make all these bails like four dollars or two dollars, you know, and and not have any back and forth between the counties. So the counties, they all have their own bail schedule. Does the state require each county to set a bail schedule? That's correct. Okay. Yes. And does so the bail schedule take into consideration the criminal history? No. It so it's just in, if you're the bail charged with based on the crime. Only the crime, not the criminal only, history. Yeah, no, only the only the crime. Now there's some overriding things, you know. Um there is some conditions where if defendants have completely, you know, multiple times, the bail actually could go up. But uh Generally speaking, it's it's just based on the crime. Every we know it's where I've seen a bail schedule before. It'll you know it's um, it'll say if you're charged with this crime with no criminal history, here's your bail. If you're charged with this crime and you have a criminal history, here's your bail. Uh, but 
but so that's very interesting. But so, okay, so someone gets arrested and there's a bail schedule. How do they get bonded out through you? Do, I mean, is the bail set? Do they go before the judge and the bail says, okay, no, you're charged with this? No, no, no. It's, Long it's automatic. They never, they never go to magistration or they skip it if they have the bail. Or well, they, we, you know, in, in what we call an open case where they have been uh, just arrested and before they get to an arraignment, uh, they become eligible for bail right away. Uh, the only the only thing that's in between the arrest and that is they do have to fingerprint them and ID them. They send a, send it out to the DOJ and you know make sure they're not terrorists and stuff like that, or that they don't have other outstanding warrants. So um, they go through that process, but you know typically that takes a couple of hours you know it can vary if they're busy it could take three four hours but generally it's a couple of hours and uh and as soon as that clears we can post bond on that on on whatever is there or if there's the open charge which is what they were arrested for and and there might be warrants you know so we would be able to post bond on the warrants also individual well, we bonds. We call that, you know, we have some counties. I don't know if they're if if we have as many now, but we would say you could do a walkthrough. You know, if they have a bail schedule, you would okay. You this is what you're charged with. This is what your bond is, and so we can walk you through the jail, get you fingerprinted, and, and have a much abbreviated process. Do y'all have that in California, or is that what you just described? Well, that, I mean, that's basically what I described. You know, now on a warrant, the bail is set by a judge. Because sure. oh, of a okay. failure to appear or for whatever reason they issue a warrant, the judge sets that bail and that's whatever the judge feels is correct. I think that's very important. So when someone issues a warrant for somebody's arrest in California, they always put a bail amount with that. That's correct. Well, let's put it this way. When a defendant is supposed to appear in court and doesn't appear, the judge issues a warrant and puts a bail on it. In Texas, they would say that that would be at a recommended amount, but it can be changed by the magistrate. And there's few offenses where, you know, like in Texas, they. I think this is really new as well as a part of some of the bail reform we've been going through. You know, they're having this whole debate about whether a judge can set a bail amount with a warrant and there, and when it's just advisory versus when it's mandatory. And that's kind of new. That's a whole debate that... And, uh, and I don't, I don't think that's a really good debate. I think when, when a judge issues a warrant, he should set a bail amount. He's the one most knowledgeable about the case, and that should be mandatory, not discretionary. But, uh, but that's not where we are in Texas. I, I actually like what y'all are doing in California better. Yeah, it's it's mandatory here. Now you know, once they get back in in front of another judge, the judge could could sure vary that. I mean, that's the judge can always change bail. Let's talk about you know you you bond somebody out you know, they fail to appear for court. And so what is your process in, te in California for getting them to come back? Well, I mean, there, there's outstanding warrant uh, issue. Sure. So now they're running around with, with, a, with an arrest warrant. Um, I mean, there's a few things. We have 180 days to, to surrender, you know, get a defendant back in front of the court, whether we, we physically go arrest them and bring them back or they get picked up. I mean, the greatest majority of the time they get rearrested anyway. Do y'all as bondsmen have the ability to arrest in California Absolutely. for your clients? 
See, in Texas, we don't. We don't have our bondsmen do not have the ability to rest. Only a uh, a private investigator or someone with a oh, private yeah. investigator's license has the right to rest in, in Texas. And so in Texas, you'll see the bondsmen locate them, but then they'll call uh, uh, either yeah. constables or police to come help them. Yeah, yeah. that's been a big issue uh, lately. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, t- uh, 2024, 2045, 2046 or something like that, 2047. Uh, is a is a bill that's been out uh, a fugitive recovery bill because sure. our fugitive our our recovery agents are are not licensed now ah I didn't know that we, yeah it's different Texas I know they are and I know you can't go you can't go across state lines you know and and you have to use a licensed recovery agent in, in Texas and uh, I think there's a few other states that are similar to that. But uh, not here in California, but this this bill is designed to uh, license fugitive recovery. Now, all bondsmen um, can pick up and, and arrest people just because they're bail bondsmen. And mm-hmm. uh, so a lot of a lot of future recovery guys, uh, you know, old bail licenses or or uh, or their private, you know, private investigators. But uh they don't really have the right. It, it's it. The bondsman is the one that that has the right to to do that. So let's close out this section. So you have a hundred eighty days to get somebody to return for court. If you don't, I think you've mentioned that there's a summary proceed process. They have three months to do, and if they don't do that, then they're they well, can't do it. Yeah, that there's 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 generally there's an opportunity to have an extension. So okay, um, it's if if you're diligent and you've been looking and you've been you know, trying to physically, you know, actively find the defendant, you can, you can make a motion with the court and ask for additional time. And sure. Uh, that's, that's usually granted, but only if you really do it, if you sit on your ass and don't, don't do sure. any work and just hope you can go in there and get an 180 day extension. There's a lot of guys that are finding out they're paying the bond off, you know, anybody doing their job, and physically looking and can show evidence that they've been, you know, tracking a defendant down, we'll get that 180, 180 day extension. Okay. So when the extension or, you know, the time period expires or the extension expires, you know, what, what happens then? Well, at that point there, the bond becomes due, you know, and, and, and so many things, a summary judgment is it's actually a civil order from the court to pay on the loss. You know, let's just make this really clear too. When they're doing a summary judgment, you're paying hundred percent of the bond, right? That's correct. And you know, all these groups that think, oh, bonds are just rolling in money and they never have to pay. They, they never have to pay. I mean, that's just hogwash. We pay if we don't do our job. That's the consequences of not doing our job, right? We don't, we don't go get that guy we're going to pay. I've gone to Europe. You know, I went to, I chased a cop through Mexico for 15 days by myself, try, you know, looking for him. That cost me 200 grand. I had a charitable bail fund call me recently and they were posting bail in Houston. And they were like, well, what happens if at the end of the time period, they don't come back? I'm like, well, then they're going to take your cash and they're going to keep it. And they were shocked. Like, well, that wasn't what we were told. I also heard that there's a lot of states 
that will that don't give that money back to the to to the jail funds. They give it back to the defendant. They're putting up a hundred grand on a defendant. Yeah. And you know, the defendant goes to court and does everything he's supposed to do, and, and the bail's released, it goes back to the defendant. Well, you know, Texas used to be that way too. You know, you would uh, post a cash bond, but the statute said it would be returned to the defendant. And so we had to amend the statute to address that very issue. You know, I know, you know, you're in California, so we've got to talk about these attempts to turn California. I guess, you know, originally they were trying to turn y'all into the second New Jersey plan state because we were going to just release or detain people based upon uh, a risk assessment. But, you know, t- talk to me about, you know, these cycles that we've been going through where your, your legislature has been attempting to, to completely reform bail in California. Well, I mean, the first reform that was super significant was <clears throat> Prop 47. And you referred to it earlier, <clears throat> where defendants, uh, a lot of the felony level uh, crimes were reduced to misdemeanors. Like suddenly they're not as big a problem. That was one that really kicked off the big spree to rip rip off places because, you know, so a commercial bail went down to a misdemeanor level and people are just, you know, kicked right out. They come in, they kick out. Stores are losing millions. You hear about a lot of stores closing down and so on. Uh, because they're just they're just getting ripped off so bad they can't afford to stay keep their doors open. So that was the start of it, and that was a huge blow to us. Uh, you know, four five nine was a twenty five twenty thousand dollar bail. Four five nine's a I know that's California speak, but that's that's burglary basically. It's commercial burglary. Eleven three fifty is is uh, uh, drugs possession of drugs. That went down to a misdemeanor. We don't we don't ever write bonds on simple possession anymore. That was a huge blow, though. That was a real mainstay of my my business. That was that was a start of it. Then then the other big hit was SB ten. That was the real jail reform bill, and that bill was passed and signed in by the governor. and And this is something that I want to tell your viewers is. You can't let your guard down. You know, that bill, I've heard numbers as high as like three and a half million dollars that our industry spent to get a referendum to to stop that bill after it was signed in by the governor. It was a very, very expensive process. It would have been way better to have defeated that bill prior. Do you think that bill just kind of flew in under the radar originally? Is that no, it was, why? It, no, it was sold as a safe school act, I think. And I mean, it had zero to do with schools. <laughs> it was all about bail reform and trying to use algorithms to, to set bails and blah, blah, blah. And actually, it probably would have been defeated initially if the ACLU and all the, the, the big groups, you know, uh, the civil rights groups uh, jumped in at the very last second and said, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. This is very biased. These algorithms are extremely biased to to uh, to minority groups. But they came in too late. They came in one, two days ahead of it being voted in. 
It was supposed to save huge amounts of money. Well, Prop 47 was the one that was supposed to save super amount, you know, a whole bunch of money. And as of, as, as of today, all of this money that they said they were going to save, and then they were going to turn that into drug rehab programs. Uh, I don't, I don't think any of it has appeared. <laughs> it was a complete boondoggle. Well, yeah. okay. So when I look at the SB 10, there was, you know, we're, we're getting rid of bail. That's, that right. was part of that. We're replacing bail with the statewide pretrial services department. We're going to have an algorithm or risk assessment determine whether we're going to release or detain somebody. And yeah. I guess the state's going to pay for all the conditions that we need on bonds. Everything. But, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there was, there was I mean, no commercial seems, bail. It was, that was the end of commercial bail. I mean, but I mean, wouldn't that have been just, I mean, wouldn't that original bill set off alarms that this is going to come at a huge cost? Well, they don't care. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, 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 they're in la la land. They don't, they don't register that. They just want, you know, they've got these concepts that, uh, that, you know, that things aren't fair. It's wrong to have people pay for bail. It's, a, you know, it's always a, the victim is the, uh, is the defendant, <laughs> you know, they've replaced the real victims with, which are the people of the state that bear the burdens of, of bad behavior and replace that with, the defendant becoming the victim, you know, and that they're always taking advantage of and so on, uh, that, that there's tons of people in jail that can't get out because, you know, the bail, the bail, the bail. It always amazed me because 40 years ago, uh, they brought in a uh, pretrial release program. It's run by, I think, probation department. They spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on it. And they are supposed to go in and pick up the people that can't afford bail, the indigents that can't afford to get out on no, in normal circumstances. And, and that to me made some sense because, you know, not everybody can afford bail. Most can, <laughs> and most do, quite frankly, but not everybody can. And, and, they, and this group was supposed to come in and determine that and say, hey, wait, let's 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 reduce the bail to something that's affordable. And usually, that affordability was zero. Uh, it always amazes me when the state comes back and says, "Oh, there's all these people languishing in jail because they can't afford bail," when they've had in place for 40 years, a you know a, a, a state-run program to try to find a way to release those people. We shouldn't even be having that discussion, but the reality is it's, it's like most government programs. They don't work. <laughs> they just don't work. It is, you know, these programs cost millions and millions of dollars to operate. And I, I have clients all the time say, oh yeah, I called bail diversion. They call it diversion or de bail deviation, they call it. And and, you know, they couldn't they couldn't figure out a way to get me out, you know, and, and blah, blah. <laughs> so SB6, I mean, SB10 passed the legislature, signed into, the, into law by the governor. And then, you know, the bail industry and friends put together a petition drive or a drive for signatures to put it on a ballot. Is What's that process called in California? Well, a referendum. All right. So. The, enough signatures were obtained so that it was put on a referendum 
And I guess the referendum would be uh, voters, please vote to confirm what the legislature did or to turn down what the legislature did. Is that right? That's right. To turn it down. And so California, I think SB 10 actually is the first time the coalition that opposed it was pretty much a a representative of the full spectrum on criminal justice reform. It was opposed by everybody that, as you said, the NAACP, the ACLU, the bail industry, the insurance industry. I mean, both law and order and criminal reformers opposed SB 10. And it was ultimately voted down by the voters. That's that's right. And when that referendum was, and it was overwhelmingly voted down by the voters. It's just track back a little bit here. California, and you hear about it on the news, 100% left coast. <laughs> you know, I mean, they are so, we're so far left, we're almost right. Uh, they have super majority in the assembly, super majority in the Senate. They have a, uh, we have a, a, a Democratic governor. The whole place is all, all Democrat. A super majority means it's, it's so lopsided that they can overcome anything that, that a Republican part of the house might, might try to put forward. It, they're over two thirds of the assembly, over two thirds of the Senate is Democrat. You've got SB 10 that was voted down overwhelmingly by the public. And then you've got the very next legislative session. I mean, you would think, okay, legislators, if you're listening to your voters, you're going to leave bail reform alone. But (laughs) it seems like it came up again right away. Yeah, by the the guy who wrote SB 10, Senator Hertzberg. How did it get different? Was it different? You cannot just bring the same thing back, uh, you know, in its essence. So, you know, eliminating bail, he couldn't bring that back the next, you know, it would take years before he could just bring back an exact match. So what he did was come back with uh, SB 262. And, and that said, yes, surety bail, you can write surety bail. But if the defendant has a no file, which a lot of defendants do, especially once you put them on bail and delay things a little bit, has a has a not not guilty plea, okay, or just about anything, okay. Uh, you would have to give the premium back, except for ten percent. I mean, how could you even write a bond? It would actually cost you money. I mean, ten percent is just the cost of the bond. What about your office? What about your advertising? What about your employees? What about your losses? So I mean, that bill, that bill seems like a vindictive punch oh, in the nose of the oh, bail it, industry. It was, it, it was incredibly vindictive. It was brought on by a guy who absolutely hates the bail industry, Senator Hertzberg. We've known he's, he's absolutely, it was the most ridiculous thing. And he brought it back a year ago and we defeated it at the last minute when you know, there was that, that case in California where the, the guy got released on a zero bail policy, went out, murdered the lady, sure. murdered her, killed her dogs, burned her house down with them. I mean, just horrendous crime by a guy released on a, on a zero bail policy. And, and that happened simultaneously with what it was coming up. And it, and it 
it just called it. You know, people just were like, God, even the senators that would normally do this stuff in lockstep, you know, kind of said, hey, I don't want to be on that side of it. When I was preparing for today, it looked like it came up two years ago. And that's exactly right. There was that big controversy with that a, a factual situation that happened. So it died. And then again, it came up again. It came right back up on the very, it went into suspense is what happened. It didn't get killed. It, it went into suspense. He, the Senator pulled it into suspense. So that means the bill just sits in, in, in limbo. And he waited to the last second to bring it up this year. Just happened. God, month or so ago and uh just before the end of the legislative uh, the legislative session and he he pulled it out of, at the last second we were watching we were waiting and but you know what are we going to do if it doesn't come up it doesn't come up and he yanked that thing now what he did do is he went in and changed it he took a lot of the language out he tried to make it a little more palatable but the reality was it still would have put us out of business um, I mean, the, the results of having to, to write bail, take premium, sit on the premium for however long the bond's in effect, and then, and then, you know, maybe have to give the premium back. You know, I could see, I could see the Department of Insurance stepping in and saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not going to trust all these bondsmen to have to give back 50% of their premiums. We're going to make them you know, right now, when we write bonds, one of the things that we always talk about is the premium is earned when we write the bond. Sure. That's when the premium's earned. Why is that? Because we don't know how long we're on the bond. We could be on it for a day. We can be on it for two years, three years, whatever. So um, the, the premium has always been earned when you write the bond. But think about it. If, if you're writing a bond and there's a good chance that somebody's going to get you know, somewhere down the line, the case dismissed for lack of evidence, whatever, you know, um, you may have to turn around and give all but 10% of that back, which means more, <laughs> more money than you, than you even you'd be making, you'd be losing money because the 10% you have to pay for the, to the surety. But the real consequences that I started to realize is the Department of Assurance is going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You no longer earn that bail when you write the bond. You don't earn that premium when you write the bond. You earn that premium when the case is over. Uh, if the case is, is found with a defendant not guilty or a, a, a dismissal or, or whatever reason, you know, then you no longer, you got to give back everything except 10% of that premium. It seemed like to me that that bill was more vindictive than anything. Totally. Because I mean, because that bill would have required litigation. And I would say there would be a high likelihood of success that that bill would have been declared uh, I'll tell un you, unconstitutional. Well, I, I agree. Agreed. But who pays for that? Oh, you yeah. Know, I mean, it the was, bondsmen yeah, it was, and people that yeah. oppose it. If nobody yeah. comes up with millions of dollars to do that, millions. Yeah. I heard that Hertzberg, that the senator who, who's been sponsoring all these bills, that this is his last session. Is that true? True, but he's running for Los Angeles County supervisor position. Now, mm -hmm. keep in mind, L.A. County is the largest bail market in the United States, 
by far. And, uh, and now he's trying to get into the town and they hate us. They absolutely hate us. And we're going to be right back to fighting him because he made, you know, he's going to try and eliminate bail in Los Angeles County. I'm mm. sure of it. Now we're going to try and oppose him to the max. In fact, our sheriff uh, in LA County, Alex Villanueva, who we didn't exactly think he was, you know, pro bail originally, but this guy's turned out to be a hell of a, a, a sheriff and, uh, and does support us. I'm throwing a fundraiser for him. And the reason is he goes toe to toe with these county, county supervisors. I mean, they are bitter and uh, it's all over the news here locally and stuff. So I, I told all our, I said, look, we got to have a weapon. We got to get, we got to get on this yeah. with Alex Villanueva because uh, we need a, we need a, a way to, to fight back to the, to the county supervisors, which I'm hoping we can keep super, you know, uh, Hertzberg out of, but uh, you know, he's a pretty powerful Senator. He was, he was a very powerful, he was an assemblyman and then a Senator. Uh, well, you know, we had uh, something similar happen in Harris, Harris County where the DA was initially on board with all these reforms. And then once they started implementing them, she was like, started waking up and now she opposes them. And she issued a report saying that those reforms were causing crime to increase. And she was the first one to put us on the, you know, failure to appear rate being so much higher. She issued a report saying it was at least 50%. You know, the police officer union did a report saying it was, at, it was over 75. And then we did two years worth of data just to see what their own data showed. And it showed in Harris County, 80% or more people were failing to show up for court, for misdemeanor court every day. And it's like, it just, that's where I kind of keep coming back to the same conclusion. It looks like to me, the goal of these people is not, it's not really to get rid of the bail industry. It's to decriminalize crime. You know, you don't need bondsmen if you don't want people to come to court because you're just giving up on crime. And they don't want to tell the public that because the public would never support that. Well, you know, I'll tell you when I, I bail people for 40 years, okay? My dad was the longest licensed agent when he finally passed away in California. And, you know, in, in the old days, people wrote letters. I had a stack six, seven, eight inches high of letters. Oh, Mr. Armstrong, thank you so much for helping our family when we needed it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the perception that we are these big, bad ogres is, is so wrong. We help people out. I mean, when, when we post a bond, you know, it's within hours after an arrest and we get them out. We get them out fast. They have a chance to reset. But one of the things I've always told my clients is, look, it's really important that you get out. I get it. You know, everybody wants to get out of the jail. But what you don't realize is by buying a bond, you delay the arraignment. You no longer have to be in front of that judge because now you're out. Right. So they, they generally, when I write a bond, it's typically about 30 days. I'll put down before they even have to go to court. That is so significant, especially in spousal cases. A high, high percentage of them end up getting dismissed. But that case doesn't get filed because when we write that bond, we set that court date out. The DA no longer has to file that case on somebody. So, you know, if it's a felony filing, you know, you stay in court 
uh, uh, two days and, and go in front of a judge, they're going to file a felony case on you. Why? Because they don't have time to figure it out. They're just doing it because they don't have any reason not to. And the only reason you're in front of the judge in 48 hours on a felony, 24 on a misdemeanor, is because uh, you're protecting your civil rights. You must be in front of a judge within 48 hours. If you're in custody, if you're bailed, you're no longer in custody. Now a DA can wait till the end of that 30 days thing and, and get all the reports, the forensics, the drug tests, the, the interviews, whatever, you know, that all works its way back to the district attorney's office. And he can take a look at it and, and make a determination at that point. Hey, you know, this was nothing more than an argument. You know, it really doesn't meet the, the thresholds of a, of a case. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to do what we call a no file. It means he doesn't even bring, doesn't even file a case. Now, I mean, the significance of that to young people, especially, is so huge because if you have a felony filing against you, guilty, innocent, doctor, mystery, doesn't matter. When, when, when employers are looking for your criminal history, they're looking for the case number. And if that's a felony case number, you're probably never going to get a chance to even get, you know, explain it. It's going to go right off of a, a, a hiring manager's desk. You know, a guy's got 50, right? Three of them show, oh, God, felony filing, felony filing. <laughs> I could see them just throwing those files right off their desk, never even giving a chance. All because it's a felony filing. With the delay, that might move down to a misdemeanor filing or even better to a, a no file. So, I mean, the things bonds do is get people out of jail, but probably as equal is the delays that are given when you write a bond. And those delays are super significant and have so much impact. It gives you a chance to get an attorney. It gives, it gives the DA a chance to see if anything really happened, you know, when all the evidence is in front of him. He can make a, a, a decision. Shoot. It seems like it seems like you're at the epicenter of, you know, the politics or we're we're getting caught in the middle of, you know, you say liberal, conservative, uh, Democrat, Republican. It just seems like criminal justice reform, bail reform has just become it's not an issue of what's best for the criminal justice system. It's really an issue of if you are a true one party, you're a true other party you have your position given to you how do, how do we get past that and we go how do we go back to what's best for the criminal justice system and rise above the politics well one of the things probably the most significant thing today is the fact that every time you turn on the the news mm -hmm. it's all about hey bail doesn't work you know zero bail doesn't work bail reform mm -hmm. doesn't work and and i mean now they're actually saying it uh, we knew it all the time, but you know now it's it, it's it's a public. I mean, that's the the public opinion is probably the most significant thing. Secondly, you know, here in California, we are a lockstep on the left. I mean, mm -hmm. in California, look at the way they handled the COVID stuff. 
you know, I, I swear, I, I, I used to tell my wife, I said, I'm not going to wear these nose diapers anymore. You know, she'd tell me, you can't say that, Bill. You know? <laughs> but uh, they were, they, they was, it was totally different. And we need to break the super majorities here in California. We have got to, to break the super majorities. This may be the first election that I can remember where crime was one of the top two or three, four issues. Oh, yeah. And in, in parts of this country, you know, California, I think it may be one or two. And I know in Harris County, it's going to be one or two. And when we shine a light that these bail reform initiatives, these zero bail policies are really not about reform and put a big, big old sticker on it saying this is really decriminalization. I think we're going to see the public turn against these reforms. And I think if we can make bail reform is synonymous with what it really is, which is decriminalization. I think we'll finally win that battle and maybe we'll win it for a while and it'll go away for a while. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, uh, you know, I have been preaching to my board and I have a board meeting in 45 minutes, full board meeting, but I am just telling them, look, you guys, you can't let down. It's easy for me to go out and raise money when you know we're on the line like this last thing 262 which got down to within two votes of of passing and but it was pretty amazing and it was it was right up against the clock at at midnight the hard stop right at five minutes to midnight i think they had 39 votes they needed 41 votes it, it went all the way up there. And then just before it, it held at that 39 and we're all watching it live, right. On, on TV and stuff. And, uh, and then just before the clock struck 12, it started to drop. It, it went all the way down. I think they're like 28 votes for it. And what that indicates to me is these senators were willing to vote that in as a favor to Hertzberg, you know, on his glory days going out, right? But they didn't really want to be on the side of, you know, of the, the bad side, you know, the side of being pro-crime, <laughs> you know? Okay. And, and so they all bailed out at the last second. It was really something I'd never seen before. But they have a, a – they literally – it's all electronic, and these guys punch in their votes – and man, as soon as they thought that vote, when they really saw it wasn't going to pass, at least ten of them jumped off and and went to a to a uh, you know to a, an opposite vote or a no vote, you know, which is the same. As you look back over the last couple of years, what would you say are some of the lessons that you learned, or what would you do differently if you had to do it again? Fight early, support mm-hmm. legislators, support people that that are that will back you up legislators, um, sheriffs, um, anybody, but get active. Absolutely. Get out there, you know, raise funds for them. Don't be afraid to spend a little bit of your money because I'll tell you, as exemplified by what it costs us to to stay in business at SB 10, it is a lot cheaper to to put some effort into it early on before it, it gets off the ground than it is to have to, to to defend it after it's already voted in. 
So I, I, I just cannot tell you how important it is to have state organizations, you know, the PBUS, everybody has got to work all the time and develop people that are on your side, that see it your way, that are in the legislator, legislators and, uh, and, and influencers and, and mayors and everything, you know, like we're supporting the sheriff. Why? Because he's, he's on TV and he's, he's willing to say, you know, that bail's good. He understands bail's a part of it. Bail's not the answer to everything, but it's the answer. But, but why not let bail do its job and deal with the little bit that's left over? Doesn't that make more sense than to deal with 100% of the pro of people? That's what I never understood. Why do they look to, to, to deal with 100% of the defendants as opposed to dealing with 10% of the defendants that, that can't take care of themselves? And, well, uh, I, I, I want to go back to a point that you made earlier. The government government never does a job good. And so I think part of the coalition that's on the left is knows that and they want to create chaos because I think that the that small part of the coalition, their goal is exactly what we've said over and over and over again today. And that is they they don't want reform. They want decriminalization for whatever reason. They think that these people shouldn't be held accountable at all. And so the more chaos they can create is you cannot hold people accountable. And that's what I think is happening across the country. And I think the public's waking up to it. And I know we've gone way over time. And I just can't thank you enough for talking with me today and telling us about California and talking about the lessons learned there. And thank you so much for, for sharing all this stuff. And I hope we all learn from it and become better for the, uh, better spokesmen for our industry. Thank you so much, sir. Well, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening and come back for the next episode of The Bell Post.